Hi everybody, I'm Raj. I am Ashwin. And this is the Blood Cancer Talks podcast. Today we are excited to talk about the management of newly diagnosed Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia or lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. We have an expert on Waldenstrom's, Dr. Mori Gertz, who is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Dr. Gertz is a giant in the field of plasma cell disorders and has mentored numerous trainees and faculty. And this episode is very special to me since Dr. Gertz is the one who inspired me to embark on a career in plasma cell disorders. So Dr. Gertz, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your clinical and research focus is? Sure, Raj. I, I worked in the dysproteinemia clinic at Mayo. So that takes care of all monoclonal gamopathies. So I see MGUS and I see myeloma, Waldenstrom's, but I see some of the rarer problems associated with gamopathies that we'll touch on, such as cryoglobulinemia, um, sclero-myxedema, uh, some of the cold agglutinin disease, the less common POM syndrome that are associated with the monoclonal gamopathies. And I'm pretty much a full-time clinician. Most of, I don't have a bench presence at all. And most of what I've done in my career is just describing the patients I see. Thank, thank you, Dr. Gertz, for that introduction. Let's jump right in. Um, so just for the our audience, you know, what is Waldenstrom's microglobulinemia? And one question we always you know, get confused is, is it the same as lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma? So Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia is identified by lymphoplasmocytic morphology greater than 10% of the bone marrow space with over... Uh, 10% cells with a monoclonal IgM protein of any size. You can have lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma without an IgM monoclonal protein. It's not Waldenstrom's. The biologic behavior is very different. And there are patients who have lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma with IgG, IgA, and light chain monoclonal proteins. If you look at the overall survival of lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma without an IgM and with an IgM, it's identical. The biologic behavior is very, very similar. But the IgM adds these unusual properties that don't exist with the others, such as hyperviscosity syndrome, peripheral neuropathy that aren't seen with standard lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. It's important to emphasize that it's a morphologic definition, not a genetic definition. MYD88 is not required for a diagnosis mutant of uh, Waldenstrom's microglobulinemia. How can we differentiate between Waldenstrom's microglobulinemia and IgM multiple myeloma? So let's do the numbers. Uh, myeloma prevalence is 10 times what Waldenstrom's is, but IgM myeloma is only 1% percent of myeloma. So therefore, if you don't even see the patient, you're outside the door and you know they have a monoclonal IgM and symptomatic, it's 10 times more likely they'll have Waldenstrom's and IgM myeloma. But the differential diagnosis isn't very hard. I mean, the morphology is lymphoplasmacytic. MYD88 is present in 90%. They, Waldenstrom's patients don't have translocations of the immunoglobulin heavy chain locus at chromosome 14. Waldenstrom's, and so myeloma plasma cell morphology, they're expressing CD38 and CD138 in the majority of cells. A small component can have CD20 because there is CD20 positive multiple myeloma. And the Waldenstrom's patients can have a small population of CD138, CD38, but it's really based on 
the morphology, the fish in Waldenstrom's, the most common genetic abnormality in Waldenstrom's is 6Q minus. MYD88 is completely lacking in multiple myeloma. It really defines all lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma with or without IgM. And of course, then you've got the clinical. Waldenstrom's shoddy lymphadenopathy, low SUV uptake on PET, anemia, no lytic bone lesions in Waldenstrom's. You're not seeing that and you're not seeing the lymphadenopathy and myeloma. So the clinical distinction with the bone and the like, and although cast nephropathy actually does occur in Waldenstrom's, it's quite uncommon. So if you've got an IgM and you've got renal insufficiency, myeloma has to get a good look. So the next question is regarding, you know, we wanted to know what are the clinical signs and symptoms of Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, and what are the tests that you typically order uh, when you are seeing a patient for the first time for baseline evaluation? Right. So first, uh, you know, let's differentiate whether the patient is being suspicious for IgM mugus or Waldenstrom's. A patient who has an IgM of a gram and a hemoglobin that's completely normal and a urinalysis that doesn't show protein and no palpable lymphadenopathy, they don't get any further workup. I get a chem panel to be sure the creatinine's normal, but I'm not doing imaging or a bone marrow on an IgM mugus. And it should be relatively easy to tell. They're not symptomatic. Patients with active Waldenstrom's, they're anemic. And so they have symptomatic fatigue with exertion. Adenopathy in Waldenstrom, unimpressive. It's shoddy. You see it in the retroperitoneum. You can sometimes feel it, but these are not big nodes. And the SUV is generally under five, you know? And so those are the distinguishing features. Uh, obviously, hyperviscosity, which is quite uncommon nowadays, presents most commonly with oronasal bleeding. It's epistaxis and it's gingival bleeding. Too many people think that hyperviscosity is headaches or dizziness. Those are way, way too nonspecific symptoms to just say, oh, you, this might be hyperviscosity syndrome. I measure the hyper, I measure viscosity level if the IgM is over 4,000. Under 4,000, I don't measure it. If I think they have Waldenstrom's, then of course they need to have a bone marrow because we are going to count and be sure that lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma is responsible for their anemia. And while we're doing the bone marrow, we will check MYD88 and CXCR4. For most patients, actually, imaging for me is kind of a optional. I don't think it contributes very much. I think it's uncommon for symptomatic Waldenstrom's that much is gained from the PET scan. I mean, you see the adenopathy, you see the uptake, but it usually doesn't drive a decision to treat patients. So it's pretty easy. CBC, chemistry, viscosity when it's over 4,000, and the bone marrow. Those are the really big things that you really need to know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, one thing, as you had alluded to regarding the MIDI-88 mutation, one thing that we sometimes see in patients when they are referred from the community and the bone marrow is done outside is sometimes the mutation panels of MIDI-88 and CXCR4 are not performed. So can you comment on uh, the clinical significance of MIDI-88 and CXCR4 yeah. mutation? Yeah, I don't repeat the bone marrow. I don't put them through a second bone marrow. It's a shame that they didn't do it. And I would rather have it. But it is not such a critical issue to me then I'm forcing them into another bone marrow simply to get those genetic mutations. Usually knowing the percentage infiltration, because, you know, 
you're not getting anemic in Waldenstrom's for 20% infiltration. You need 50, 60, 70%. So as long as it confirms that's why they're anemic, I'm pretty happy. And I think CXCR4 is actually extremely reassuring to me when it's positive to go, absolutely, it's not IgM myeloma. It's absolutely lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. But the truth is in the clinic, even though it has some predictive value on therapy, it, the most important driver for what I choose for first-line therapy is what the patient wants. I think you put it, you said it that, you know, we do not repeat the bed, uh, uh, testing for mid-88 mid, mid and uh, um, for CXCR4 mutations, if it is not done as at the outside hospital, can we do this mutation analysis from peripheral blood? It's possible, but the sensitivity is much less. It's pretty easy by flow to sort the CD19, CD20 positive cells and analyze them. You absolutely can analyze them for MYD88. I'm less sure about CXCR4. But again, you know, you need a certain dose of cells. I mean, looking for MYD88 in IgM MGUS, it is said that it's less frequent, but I don't actually believe that. What I believe is there's so few cells available for analysis, you come up negative. And so the problem is an MYD88 negative on peripheral blood has no meaning at all okay. because you just worry that you didn't get enough sorted cells. But an MYD88 positive in peripheral blood, you can take that to the bank. So, you know, once you have seen a patient and you want to start treatment, before starting treatment, how do you risk stratify these patients? Is there a staging system? There is a staging system. We still use it. And it's important because it's not the flippy and it's not the IPI. So all those don't apply the Waldenstrom's. There's five criteria in Waldenstrom's, hemoglobin, platelet count, IgM level. But get this, the IgM level that makes important in staging is over 7,000. Otherwise, it does not contribute to survival prediction, okay? Then you have age. Age is the most important factor in Waldenstrom's and beta-2 microglobulin. I'd say in my referral practice, that's the one that the outside physicians consistently forget. They don't do a beta-2 microglobulin before they start treatment, so we can't stage the patient. The only other thing I'd point out is that unlike the IPI and the flippy, LDH is not part of the model for Waldenstrom's. And the reason it's not is that the LDH is normal in over 95% of patients. And so since it's so infrequently positive, you can't get it to work in the statistical model because it just isn't present enough. Thank you, Dr. Kurtz. You briefly touched on the, the goals, indications of treatment as well. On a similar line, what is the goal of you know, initiating, myelo, uh, initiating therapy in a Waldenstrom patient, because in multiple myeloma, you know, we hear so much about the importance of achieving a deep hematological response, such as stringent CR or MRD negativity. Is it important in Waldenstrom to achieve a complete response? Well, again, first of all, why are we treating the patients? Disease right. is incurable, highly indolent. Survivals, even before the introduction of BTK inhibitors, people were living 10 to 20 years. Now, with everything that's on the map between venetoclax and bendamustine and ixazomib and bortezomib, it's expected that most patients will do quite well. In fact, SEER statistics suggest that 50% of Waldenstrom's patients die of completely unrelated causes. That's not myeloma. In myeloma, 90% will die of myeloma. 
but that's not Waldenstrom. So we're looking for less toxic treatment and intervention. But because we can't cure it, what we're looking for is palliation of symptoms. So they need to be symptomatic. Having an IgM of 6,000 with a hemoglobin of 11.5 and no hyperviscosity is not an indication for therapy. There has to be something to treat. These patients aren't like CLL. They don't have minus 17P. They don't have these very adverse prognostics. So you want to wait until they actually have some symptoms to bother with, to make them feel better, not make them feel worse before you initiate therapy. And so you want to be clear about that. And the truth is our ability to produce MRD negativity, stringent CR, VGPR is nowhere near what it is in multiple myeloma. Biology is different. Patients are older. And so what happens, here's a typical phone call to me. Hi, I want to know what to do next for my patient. I go, tell me about the patient. Well, the patient showed up with a 6,000 IgM and a hemoglobin of eight. And I treated them. And after six months, the IgM is 4,000. I want to know if I should do anything. I go, what's the hemoglobin? They go, 14. I go, success. You've normalized the hemoglobin. I don't care. This is barely a PR, but you've achieved your endpoint. Your endpoint was to get the hemoglobin up. Now the patient is feeling well. I don't actually care what that IgM is because you corrected the primary reason for therapy, which was the anemia. This is very different from myeloma because you get that kind of minimal response. The patient is still at risk of developing new lytic lesions, pathologic fractures, and spinal disease. That doesn't occur with Waldenstrom. So if you've got your primary endpoint, whether it was anemia, bulky adenopathy, or viscosity corrected, the fact that the IgM went down some is enough for me. And you shouldn't say, oh, I need second line therapy. This is less than a PR. This disease is not multiple myeloma. Thank you, Dr. Gertz. On the similar lines, and this is something we always encountered as a fellow at our respective places that now, how do you manage acutely ill patients with hyperviscosity syndrome? So again, hyperviscosity is a disease, not a number. So the patient has viscosity of five and no symptoms, no bleeding in the nose or mouth. And most importantly, the ophthalmologist looked into retina and say, they're not bleeding. That's not an emergency, no matter what the viscosity number is. And you don't have to approach it urgently. I think when you're seeing a patient with an elevated viscosity level, you need an ophthalmologist. I can't, they need their pupils dilated. They need a retinal exam. Someone needs to tell you that they're not going to go blind. People can go blind. They get retinal detachments. They get occlusion of the retinal artery. So hyperviscosity causing an eye change is a big deal. Yeah, gum bleeding, nose bleeding, it's symptomatic, it's unpleasant, but that's not going to cause permanent damage. People lose vision, and that's the big emergency is when the eye doctor says, I see bleeding and the viscosity is up. And so in those patients, time is precious because one minute they could be seeing fine, and then the next minute they hemorrhage, they're blind in one eye, and it's potentially preventable. So those patients do need emergency plasma exchange. It's really rather impressive. If you do one plasma exchange 
or a second plasma exchange, you drop the IgM a third. But if you drop the IgM a third, you're going to drop the viscosity 75% because it's exponential. You don't need a lot of IgM reduction. But the big indication is, is retinal bleeding. You know, the rest of it is very, very uncommon. And the truth is, 40 years ago, I used to see hyperviscosity. Today, everyone goes for their Medicare checkup, their total protein seven or eight. They get it checked and they're diagnosed in an early stage. Most of the Waldenstroms I've seen have, well, more than half anyway, have antecedent IgM, MGUS. And when you're being tracked like that, nobody develops hyperviscosity because they're being watched by a competent hematologist. It's rare. It's critical when it occurs, but one or two exchanges separated by two days ought to be enough. And also on the you know, similar lines, and this is something that's more of a practical question we always you know, see is that something called IgM flare that we occasionally see with rituximab treatment, uh, which is part of the management of storms. And do you see that and how do you manage it? So I don't see it anymore. Um, IgM flare was really a consequence of the utilization of single agent rituximab. If you give rituximab alone, you will kick up that IgM. But as we're going to be talking later, single agent rituximab, in my opinion, is almost never indicated for the treatment of full-blown Waldenstrom's. Maybe for neuropathy, it's okay, or maybe for cryo, it's okay. But if you have full-blown Waldenstrom's, rituximab is by every measure inferior as a single agent needs to be combined with something and when you start combining rituximab with other therapies the risk of a flare is reduced because the other therapy is getting those cells down before flare but what i've been doing lately frankly about the last five or six years is i don't give rituximab with cycle one whether you're using a brutinib or bendamustine or xanobrutinib or exazomib or cyclophosphamide, you, you're not curing the disease. It's not a question of dose intensity. Don't give rituximab for the first cycle, or if you want, not for the first two cycles. You start with a cytotoxic therapy that is not causing flare, and then you don't have to worry about flare and weekly monitoring and plasma exchange, and you'll add the rituximab when the serum viscosity level or the IgM is down to safer levels. And remember, if your IgM is 2,000 and you flare to 3,000, so what? You're not going to get into trouble with the 3,000. The people you worry about are the 5,000 and 6,000 who will flare to seven and 8,000. That's a real problem. Don't give rituximab with the first cycle or two, but don't give it as a single agent. Yeah, thanks for the practical point. So now we will shift gears and move to the fun part that is the treatment of newly diagnosed Waldenstrom's. So can you briefly touch upon the major treatment regimens for newly diagnosed Waldenstrom that are supported by phase three randomized control trials? Oh, sure. I mean, right now, I mean, you, you've really got about three or four choices. If you go back, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, dexamethasone is a completely legitimate treatment. And there are many countries around the world where a BTK inhibitor and bendamustine is not an option. And so RCD is old but it's quite effective. It's actually from a overall survival standpoint, it's as effective as bendamustine, but it has shorter progression-free survival. And it's a little harder, you know, more cytopenias, alopecia, nausea, vomiting, that sort of thing. It's still acceptable. 
Next that came along after that was the use of uh, um, um, bortezomib. Uh, bortezomib is highly effective in Waldenstrom's and it really produces good responses, but you really, really have to be careful for the neurotoxicity. It is much more neurotoxic in Waldenstrom's patients than myeloma patients. And it's bad enough because if you're going to live 10 to 20 years, you don't want to do it with painful peripheral neuropathy that's requiring pregabalin, you know, every night or oxycodone. So it's effective, but it requires a lot of monitoring. Then in Europe, most of Europe uses arbendamustine, which is a awfully good regimen, median progression-free survival, seven and a half years. Rituximab maintenance not demonstrated to improve things. And then finally, you've got the BTK inhibitors. I mean, abrutinib was truly a breakthrough agent in this treatment. And since then, zanubrutinib, both of which are very highly effective in the management of the disease, but there's pros and cons, which in large part can be patient driven once they've been apprised of the risks and the benefits of all the regimens. As, as you have said, it's mostly, you know, patient driven in, in many circumstances, like within, in between the different BTK inhibitors, like ibrutinib, zanabrutinib, or acalabrutinib, do you typically, in, in older adults who have comorbidities, do you typically prefer one over the other based on their toxicity profile or efficacy? Well, again, the first step is to talk to the patient whether a BTK inhibitor is their preferred first line. I mean, before Xanobrutinib, when we were talking about Abrutinib or Arbendamustine or R or Arbrutinib, <coughs> I think the big issues were, do you want time-limited therapy that will be given for a finite period of time or stop? Or would you prefer a pill there's no intravenous, there's not very much cytopenias involved, but it's intended to be given indefinitely to progression and you'll be on it. And at least for a brute nib, there was fatigue, fluid retention, and the big bugaboo, the thing that really made it tough was atrial fibrillation. Because yeah. the atrial fibrillation is 10 to 20%. And most hematologists don't thought, oh, okay, atrial fibrillation. But, you know, once one of these patients gets atrial fibrillation, now you're facing, are they going to get cardioverted? Are you going to do a, an ablation? Are you going to put them on new medicines for rate control? And a big one, are you now putting them on lifelong anticoagulation for stroke prevention? So that's not a trivial consideration that atrial fibrillation. Now, xanobrutinib has far fewer off-target effects particularly with atrial fibrillation from like 12 down to 3%. And so, but it's still, you know, it's still indefinite therapy. And that's the discussion with the patient is, is do you want therapy that will eventually will end, but is intravenous and you need your blood counts monitored carefully, or do you want a pill and come see me every two to three months and we'll make adjustments, uh, but you're going to stay on it. And if you have side effects, well, We'll try to manage those, but you're not. We don't want to stop abrutinib or xanabrutinib abruptly because you know that's got its problems to a flare. Yeah. Um, before moving on, I wanted to touch upon briefly the Innovate trial, which was in Lancet comparing abrutinib rituximab to placebo rituximab. So, as right. you had alluded to, that single agent rituximab is not the is not a standard of care in patients with Waldenstrom. Um, so, do you think the control arm? an ideal control arm in that setting should have been bendamustine rituximab? So again, when you're looking to trials that are sponsored by pharma, 
they're going to design it so they absolutely win. They're not going to design it to lose. So they, I mean, I mean, we we know from prior experience that rituximab response rates run 40 to 50% when you look for PRs, 40 to 50%. Well, chlorambucil and fludarabine have 85% response rates. And of course, when you look at, for example, when abrutinib came up in CLL, what was the comparator arm? It was chlorambucil. Well, nobody's using chlorambucil, of course, but pharma wants a win, so they're going to design it to win. So there was no question. So, but the real question is, when you give abrutinib, do you need rituximab at all? Is it adding anything? What is abrutinib rituximab versus abrutinib? And pharma is not sponsoring that trial at all because they want to get abrutinib approved. So there has to be a non-abrutinib arm. So you can't get that. Obviously, is abrutinib better than bendamustine or are abrutinib and are bendamustine? But no pharma-sponsored trial is going to look at that because there's a winner and a loser, and they're not in the business to have a loser, you know? Now, at ASCO 2022, there's going to be a multi-institutional case series that looks retrospectively at ibrutinib-based versus bendamustine-based in a case series. And I think that'll be a really interesting abstract. Yeah. You know, but again, you know, I mean, if you were designing a trial in a cooperative group, I think this question of there are a couple, I think, important questions. One is, is a BTK inhibitor long term better than bendamustine? That would be one. Other questions are, well, what about add on drugs to those? Would, would that be better? But I think the real holy grail would be. Do we have to give BTK inhibitors indefinitely? Is there a possibility that we could stop the BTK inhibitor, observe the patient, and then resume it? I think that would also be a valuable question because oral time-limited therapy, that would be very attractive. Okay. I don't think it's right to just tell the patient how you're going to treat them if there's not a clinical trial. I think you need to explain, you know, the pros cyclophosphamide based, that's clearly the least expensive. And that would clearly be a good option in a resource poor country. You know, you say a brutinib, but you know, truth is four fifths of the world cannot afford a brutinib. So it's all good to say it, but you have to be able to acquire it. And then, and then now that bortezomib is generic and rituximab is generic, or at least bioequivalent, I don't think it's right to say that shouldn't be used. Those are very active regimens that provide good palliation, but patients need to understand what they're getting into with each of the various regimens, because from an efficacy standpoint, cross-trial comparisons, they're all really very effective with 85% response rates to 90%. So Dr. Goetz, you elegantly said earlier that at the end, you will discuss with the patient before deciding a treatment. But is there any time period you would consider the mutation uh, profile playing a role in treatment selection? Probably not for first line. The mutational profile has nothing at all to do with cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, bendamustine. It only really has been shown to be important in patients who elect ibrutinib. But if ibrutinib gave you a 85, 90% response rate, but if you were wild type, 
MYD-88, it was a 70% or 65%. Would you not consider it as an option? I mean, it's still, you'd consider it. And you also have to keep in mind that when we talk response rates, we're still talking about the IgM level. And again, I emphasize that if the IgM level doesn't go down 50%, that doesn't necessarily mean a treatment failure. It's just our conventional definition of response is 50%. And if you don't make it, well, then you're not a PR, but that doesn't mean the patient didn't benefit in any way. In fact, at least before BTK inhibitors, and before venetoclax, when you looked in patients who were treated with the old style drugs, you couldn't show that VGPR survived longer than PR. That wasn't the case. Now we're beginning to see that as the frequency of deeper responses, not CRs, those are hard to get, but VGPRs actually do better. And as you would expect, they have an, a better progression-free survival. But again, looking at crude response rates in this disease is also a little bit misleading if the clinical benefit that they achieved was what you would hope to do when you started treatment in the first place. And other than BTK inhibitors or the bendamustinituximab, what are the other regimens that have promising data on efficacy and when do you consider using that? Uh, well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot that's going on in this space. You know, there are trials looking at xanobrutinib, which, as you know, is approved for Waldenstrom's, adding exazamin. Venetoclax clearly has activity in this disease. Waldenstrom's patients have a lot of BCL2 to inhibit, and venetoclax is active, even though, you know, it, it, it's not first line yet. Then adding venetoclax to other agents becomes, I think, a relevant consideration there are trials out there of bortezomib, ibrutinib, rituximab. Um, and there's actually recently um, inhibitors of CXCR4 because they have the worst prognosis, the worst response rate. There are oral inhibitors of CXCR4 that have been, dem I don't know that they're going forward commercially, but they've been demonstrated to help some of these patients. And finally, although it's never mentioned, PI3 kinase inhibitors are active in Waldenstrom's. Idlalacib is active in Waldenstrom's, but was abandoned because of the high hepatotoxicity rate. Well, then the question comes up, are there other next generation PI3 kinase inhibitors that may not have that hepatotoxicity? So there's a lot of optimism because there's so much opportunity, you know, and, and, and I tend to use a lot of bendamustine, but that doesn't mean that Maybe bendamustine exazimib is better or bendamustine with very low dose uh, utilization of venetoclax because I worry about the higher rates of infection in venetoclax treated patients. I mean, there's a lot of play for what's coming up. But I think if we look five to 10 years forward, I think venetoclax is going to have an ever increasing role in this disease. And when you say venetoclax, it's indefinite again? Well, it's currently indefinite. I mean, again, these are real problematic issues for which I don't have a good answer. I mean, you know, again, for such an indolent disease, it's not like I'm afraid to stop venetoclax, see the protein start to rise and resume the venetoclax. But for right now, it looks to be indefinite. But there are trials, again, where venetoclax is combined with other Waldenstrom's drugs where it's fixed duration therapy. 
right. So uh, as you know, Dr. Gers, for many uh, indolent lymphomas, we always worry about transformation to large cell lymphoma. So what proportion of patients with Waldenstrom's transform over the long term? And are there any like predictors of who will transform to large cell lymphoma? So it is a very real problem. And it's a significant cause of death, transformation. And the transformation rates are almost identical to other low-grade lymphomas. And so a patient who start, you know, B symptoms, you don't see so much with Waldenstrom's or so if they're getting B symptoms or they're losing weight or all of a sudden they've got an isolated neck node and that's got to be biopsied. Or if they get a node and you do PET imaging and you've got something with an SUV of 10, that's going to have to be biopsied. You can't assume that's low grade. So I, you're very right to ask because I didn't touch on it, but transformation is a big deal as of course is central nervous system involvement with Waldenstrom's. Those are both very real and they can emerge in patients who are having wonderful control. The Waldenstrom's is great. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden their liver enzymes and all of a sudden there's a filling defect in the liver and it's large cell lymphoma or they start having goofy symptoms and you send them to neurology and they've got lymphomatous meningitis. They're, thank goodness, uncommon, but they're real and you need to be vigilant about that for the patients who are out five and 10 years. You already touched upon some, some of the interesting agents in relapsed refractory setting. Is there a role of autologous transplant in, in Waldenstrom? So we did a lot of autologous transplant 20 years ago because it really is, it's low risk, low morbidity, and response rates four to five years, actually a little lower than bendamustine. Uh, but that was useful palliation then. And we did a lot and they still do a lot in the EU. But again, a lot of that goes to the fact of what agents can they access? So I have so many choices of treatment of using Xanubrutinib and Venetoclax and Exazomib and Bortezomib and Bendamustine my utilization for transplant has fallen a lot and I've stopped collecting patients just because I have so many good options in clinical trials. And even and in, for patients at the very end, I still use fludarabine or cladribine. Those are highly active agents. It's just that they're, so, they're more toxic and they're so immunosuppressive. They're just not good choices up front, but they still work. And so I haven't. But if you go look at what is recently published uh, article out of the EU led by British investigators and transplant. It was used and was quite effective, but again, we have so many options that don't require that the yeah. patient has to go away for six weeks and be hospitalized that I've just cut back, but it's not wrong. Now uh, let's focus on some of the important syndromes associated with Waldenstrom's microglobulinemia. I think the first thing is cryoglobinemia. Yeah. So again, you know, most of the patients with Waldenstrom's, it's all about the lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. But when you see a patient who's not behaving right with an IgM monoclonal protein, you need to think of four things. You need to think of cryo, cold agglutinin, hemolytic anemia, amyloidosis, and IgM-mediated neuropathies. You started with cryo. So what we're thinking about here is a monoclonal IgM, and that almost always is with a polyclonal IgG. 
So you have IgM monoclonal and IgG polyclonal. That's where the term mixed comes from. That's mixed, IgM and IgG. And by definition, that is type 2. And type 2 cryoglobulinemia, not common, but it is well-recognized. And <clears throat> there, you can prove it pretty easily. Most of these patients have low complement levels. Total hemolytic complement C4, C3 gets consumed into the immune complex. And another important clue, really important that most hematologists forget is that all type two cryos have strong rheumatoid factor activity. The rheumatoid factor is high titer because the definition of a rheumatoid factor is an IgM with an IgG. So type two mixed, they all have high titer rheumatoid. And I've seen a couple of patients with cryoglobulinemia who were treated for years by rheumatologists with azathioprine because the rheumatoid factor was high without arthritis. And then they came here and we found that IgM monoclonal protein. go, this isn't rheumatoid vasculitis, it's cryo. And the clinical manifestations are really two big ones. They, they could be everywhere, but two big ones, the skin, with purpura and ulcerations. Those ulcerations are life-threatening. And renal, causing renal vasculitis, proteinuria, and renal insufficiency. And so you just, we're not going to talk about treatment of it here, but you just need to be aware it's in the differential diagnosis of patients who have an IgM protein and are behaving kind of strange, particularly the ones who have gravitational purpura, skin ulcers, or proteinuria because cryo is an MGRS. And uh, the next one is IgM amyloidosis. So that's a rare, rare. I mean, you know, when you look at Waldenstrom's, our experience is that in Waldenstrom's, about 7% of patients have amyloid. And also when you look at patients with uh, amyloidosis, six to 7% are IgM. And so we're talking pretty uncommon. I mean, you have to, you could maybe have a whole career to see one or two patients, you know, if you're not in a referral practice. But the clinical behavior is very much like standard amyloid. Cardiomyopathy, although it's a little less prevalent, renal involvement, two characteristics, higher incidence of lung involvement, higher incidence of neuropathy. But again, when you have an IgM patient who's having funny stuff, edema, proteinuria, shortness of breath with a normal hemoglobin, the possibility that this is a amyloid, it can sneak in. And those patients with IgM, they don't always have really high light chains. Like the normal amyloids we see, the light chain is 200 milligrams per liter, 300 milligrams per liter. With the IgMs, it can be 30, 40, 50 milligrams per liter. So you just have to think about it. Regarding the, you know, the, another manifestation that we see quite commonly is the magneuropathy in patients with, uh, sometimes it can be just an IgM-related magneuropathy, but sometimes we can even see, like, as you know, in patients with the uh, Waldenstrom clone in the bone marrow. So in these situations, do you always use single-agent rituximab or do you use something more than just rituximab? Mm -hmm. So again, it depends on the presentation. From my experience, most, most of the IgM neuropathies have small monoclonal proteins, 0. 0.5 to 1.0. And their bone marrow is 10%, 15, 20, which for me are not important numbers. And typically those patients, hemoglobin's normal, they have no other manifestations. So they're really not behaving like a malignancy. And so the patients who are symptomatic. 
if I can treat them with pregabalin or gabapentin, I'll do it if it doesn't bother me because the treatment's not very effective, frankly. That's the real problem is the treatment doesn't work all that often. So for those patients, I will use rituximab as a single agent because I don't want to bring out heavy guns when the behavior clinically is not malignancy. And having said that, I'll tell you that our neurologists still like giving them trials of intravenous immunoglobulin. And I've seen that work. So even though you're not treating the IgM that's destroying the myelin, for some reason that I don't understand, IVIG can be effective. And so that's worthwhile. And I think a trial of rituximab for symptomatic reasons. Someone who comes in and says, my toes tingle and they don't have anything else, I treat them symptomatically. I don't want to get involved with over-treating patients with trivial symptoms. Switching gears, can we talk a little bit about familial predisposition of Gordon-Strong's microglobulinemia? And do you see often in your clinical practice? So, uh, yeah, you do see it. I mean, you know, for the majority of patients, 85, 90%, there's no connection at all. But you do this long enough and you'll start seeing patients where three generations have it. And you can't identify a specific abnormality, but it's not a coincidence where I, I saw a sibling pair with Waldenstrom's. I have one where a mother and a daughter had Waldenstrom's, the brother had MGUS. You can't possibly believe that's a coincidence. So clearly there are individuals where there's clearly a genetic well, maybe they shared a common environment. I'm not sure. But they're clearly increased in the first degree relatives. But that genetic or environmental trigger has simply not been identified. Now, it, there is no consensus about if you have Waldenstrom's, whether your first degree relatives should be screened. I hope that Irene Gobriel's promise study will shed light the I-STOP myeloma, which is screening everyone in Iceland for monoclonal gammopathies, might help us understand better. I will tell you in my practice, I don't have them contact first degree family members for SPEPs um, because it's only in the 10% range. But I don't know if that's the right answer because there clearly are families where there's a familial predisposition. But I don't know whether finding the monoclonal protein is just gonna trigger a lot of anxiety or whether I've really done them a service by identifying it early. And these patients usually present younger and more aggressive disease or? Well, this? you know, here's the problem. There's case finding bias that when you start doing epidemiologic studies like that. So if you have a patient with an IgM monoclonal protein, part of it is going to be checking the kids. And once you start checking the kids, you're introducing bias into the system where you'll identify small monoclonal proteins that won't become a problem for 30 years and it makes it look like they're younger. You really need kind of nationwide high-level studies to really understand if those patients present younger. I've seen reports of younger, but these are often single institution studies where they're Waldenstrom centers. And so there's all this referral bias bringing people in and highly educated, committed patients, recruiting first degree family members. And I'm not sure that's representative, these single institution case series 
of what a high level strategy would show. So I'm not willing to, even though there are reports, I don't know if those are so well designed that we can say you're in trouble because you're going to get it younger. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground today. So Dr. Kurtz, uh, before we end, what are some of the pivotal trials that are currently ongoing in the field that you think may change practice in the coming years? Well, I think there's still a pretty serious unmet need for central nervous system Waldenstrom's, the so-called Bing Neal, because people get that and it is bad. It's a horrible disease and we need more effective therapy. Although I'd say that today, this minute, the standard of care is a brutinib because it crosses the blood-brain barrier. But I really think, you know, I mean, half of ASCO's leukemia is on venetoclax. I mean, it's like venetoclax for everybody, but still it's a pretty easy medication to use. And if it has activity in Waldenstrom's, we really should understand better how to position it. I think that over time, we are going to see migration to Xanobrutinib. Not better. It's clearly not more effective than a Brutinib, but it does appear that the toxicity profile really is superior. And again, I'll tell you, Kudos to the company because they did do a winner-loser study. They did Xanobrutinib versus Abrutinib. And if Xanobrutinib wasn't superior, that drug would have been out the window, but it showed much lower toxicity. So it's an effective agent. But you also have to remember that Abrutinib will be generic 10 years earlier than Xanobrutinib. And so we can't ignore the financial toxicity when people start talking about combining Abrutinib or Xanobrutinib and venetoclax and therapy that never stops. It is, it'll be a budget buster and it, it can't be ignored. Th- thanks a lot, Dr. Gertz, for your time. Uh, this was awesome and we learned a lot. Oh, Ashwin, thank we you. Look- I was delighted to do it. And Raj, thanks for having me. You know, it's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it was great to see you. And then I think we, we learned a lot and our audience will love this episode. I hope so. Yeah. And we look forward to having you on future episodes or discussing more about plasma cell disorders. Well, we'll talk about smoldering myeloma and amyloid. I've got opinions there too. Yeah. Anyway, I'll see you guys at ASCO, okay? Yeah.